Sir Desmond Sterling, The Coves in Black. Episode 5 I trudged up the devil's ball sack, following the little stream so as not to get lost in the dark. The sky was crystal clear, revealing far more stars than we ever see in London. I munched the fish and chips, which I'd purchased to sustain me following the excitement of the afternoon. The young cabbie had dropped me at the Chippy, and had even volunteered to drive me to my rendezvous with La Peebles. But I wanted to explore the lay of the land, and prepare an escape route if necessary, so declined his kind offer. I instructed him to put his fare on my hotel bill, but I slipped him a few bob as a tip. He seemed very grateful, and said that if I needed warming up when I got back, that I should join him and the Major in their private quarters for a hot threesome, which I presume is the local word for a toddy. There was a sheen of frost on the ground, so spring wasn't as imminent as I'd previously hoped. I was glad of the chips keeping my hands warm. I thought I'd never reached the top of the Devil's Ball sack. The left approach had looked like the shorter climb, but it must have been an optical illusion. By the time I'd completed my ascent, sadly I'd failed to bring along a Union Jack to plant at the top, I'd finished my supper. I'd been informed that there was nothing at the summit, merely an ice cream kiosk, closed at this time of year, obviously, and benches for those who wished to skywatch. I screwed up my fish and chip paper and lobbed it into the bin, idly wondering which luckless plebeian climbed that interminable hill to empty it, particularly in the winter. I did a recce of the immediate area. There was a small, circular flat area at the top of the hill, ringed by a tuft of overgrown bushes. The kiosk, as stated, was present, boarded up and dark. A circle of four benches, each marked with the point of the compass, all facing outwards in their respective directions. The light from the moon and stars was adequate enough for clarity of vision, but it also caused shadows ample enough in which to lurk. I took a few deep breaths, enjoying the pristine, albeit chilly, air, and gazed at the vista all around. I could see towns in the distance, twinkling merrily like fairy lights, although I didn't recognise them. Quigley Godfrey nestled snugly in the valley, gently self-lit by its houses. I thought of that cosy little inn, and briefly I wished I was propping up the bar, playing so bountiful with drinks all around, while yokels informed me I was a gentleman, and that were a fact. I was also very tempted by that prospect of the hot threesome. I do enjoy a toddy on a cold winter's night. I stamped my feet to induce some warmth into them, I was definitely on my own. No sign of this legendary Peebles dame. I glanced up at the sky. Anything untoward moving? I wished I knew more about astronomy, as opposed to basic navigation skills, should one find oneself marooned in a desert or at sea. My hearing, honed by jungle warfare, heard something. My ears pricked up. There was movement in a hedge. Nocturnal fauna of some kind? A breeze? An amatory couple who had fled the village for an illicit encounter? 
typical British pluck to brave this temperature for an alfresco knee trembler. Cursing myself for neglecting to bring a torch, I cautiously approached the hedging question. Who goes there? I called. Friend or scoundrel? A silly question, I always thought, as a rogue would hardly admit to such. Indeed, some miscreants I've encountered don't actually think of themselves as villains, just misunderstood. <laughs> I've learned to spot a rotter a mile off and can debag one before they've even felt the draught. A light suddenly dazzled me. Put that bloody light out, I said, in the manner of the ARPs of your... No matter the danger, a joke is always useful. It can unnerve a villain, and if they don't crack a grin at a top-notch gag, then you know you're in the presence of a wrong'un. Desmond Sterling? A voice asked. Sir Desmond, I automatically corrected, then kicked myself. A rookie mistake, offering intel to the enemy on a plate. The light dipped to the ground, and as my eyes adjusted, I caught a glimpse of my interlocutor. The creature that stood before me was quite extraordinary. As you know, I am an acclaimed and best-selling novelist, but even a master wordsmith as I would find it difficult to recreate Mavis Peebles' miss in words. She was tall for a woman, ageless in that she was impossible to carbon date, although her hair which erupted from her head in a fizzy explosion, was silvery grey. It had seen neither brush nor scissor this side of Her Majesty's silver jubilee, and was probably long enough to comfortably keep her knees warm in a power cut. It swirled round her head, seemingly defying the laws of physics, ribbons and beads dangling from it like decorations on a dishevelled Christmas tree. She didn't seem to wear clothes as such, but was rather draped in myriad layers of different cloths, many floor-length. Multiple necklaces encircled her, much as chains did Jacob Marley, which meant she rattled every time she moved. She wore sensible boots. Her face was strong, not lined, but weather-beaten as though she spent much of her life outside. She didn't wear any makeup although her eyebrows seemed to be etched on in a perpetually quizzical look. Her eyes, lilac and cat-like, stared penetratingly at me. No one would describe her as beautiful, but she was definitely striking, almost handsome, if one can attribute that description to the fairer sex. My initial impression was that I liked the cut of her jib. Sir Desmond Sterling? she asked again. Her mannish voice was clipped and direct. Yes, I automatically replied, blowing any hope I'd had of remaining incognito. She stuck out her hand. Mavis Peebles. Her grip was like a steel clamp. We have met briefly, she said. I raised an eyebrow, as quizzical as one of her own. Who do you think put my card in your hand? The clumsy cow, I exclaimed without thinking, recalling the woman who had bumped into me in Old Compton Street. She laughed. How did you know that I might be interested? I asked her. She harumphed, 
a noise not unlike the sound a horse makes before refusing a jump. The ufological community, much like the citizens of Tauron Six in the constellation of Uttox Celtic, have tentacles everywhere, she explained. We heard on the grapevine you were making inquiries. I was in town to have a meeting with my publishers, and I asked around where you might be. I was making my way to your club when I saw you in the street. Your publishers? I asked, intrigued. Oh yes, she said airily. I'm the author of seventy-nine tomes, all on esoteric subjects: UFOs, Yeti, the Loch Ness monster, poltergeists, Alvin Stardust. The last was a commission, and I needed to fund a trip to Roswell. She took a breath and eyed me up, waiting for her necklaces to cease rattling. So what happened to you? She asked. With all the powers of the master storyteller at my fingertips, I took a deep breath and related the whole saga as I remembered it, even the embarrassing parts involving my privates. She remained silent, only snorting at the mention of the coves in black. When I finished, she just said, "Classic abduction scenario." But why me? I asked. Oh, nothing personal. She replied dismissively, "You happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time." She looked at me, a sarcastic smile playing on her face. "Did you think they wanted to meet a famous writer?" "Well, perhaps they wish to examine those of us who are a cut above," I tentatively suggested. She laughed, not altogether unkindly. As their usual targets are half-witted colonial bison shaggers, you may have a point. Then she frowned. I'm more interested in what they did up your ass, and more importantly, did they leave anything up there? I gasped. Not a prospect that had occurred to me. You need to be examined. She retrieved a pair of marigolds from her voluminous bag. I automatically crossed my legs. Certainly not, madam. She let out a sigh. I do own dogs, you know. I'm quite accomplished at rectal examinations, and I'm not squeamish. I was pretty outraged by now. I am not in the habit of allowing strange women to prod me in the most intimate ways, and not in public. This is a notorious UFO abduction hotspot. Locals don't come here after dark. No one will see. Besides, I thought you were the proud nudist. There is a big difference between doffing one's trousers on a sunny beach and submitting one's private orifices to a probing by a complete stranger. Frankly, madam, in my experience, handing a woman my ass on a plate is called alimony. Mavis Peebles stared at me crossly, her lilac eyes flashing with irritation. Then she laughed. Whenever any of my wives laughed at me, it was with a brittle, sarcastic timbre. This was a nice laugh. I chuckled back and shrugged my shoulders. She reluctantly threw her marigolds back in her bag. Well, I recommend you get yourself examined pronto. You wouldn't believe what is found up there after an abduction. She leaned forward conspiratorially. It's said. 
that Amelia Earhart's flying helmet was retrieved from inside a Texan's lower colon. I couldn't tell if she was joshing me, but I scribbled a mental note to book an appointment with my prostate waller. I wouldn't tell him why I wanted to be checked out, but he was always very thorough in having an anal rummage. If there were anything untoward up there, he'd find it. Another thought occurred to me. Just before you collided with me in London, I spotted two coves in black watching me. Mavis laughed wryly. Those perishers! Who are they? I asked. Government? Military? Are they even ours? Yanks, perhaps? She looked at me expressionlessly. Who knows? They turn up whenever someone has had a sighting or encounter and bully the poor so-and-so to keep stum. But the whys and wherefores are a mystery. Inexplicably, I wasn't sure if I believed her. They're a frightful bore, best to avoid, as you learnt earlier. Thanks to that young cabbie, I replied, full of spunkies. Quite often, she agreed. Yours too, if you play your cards right. I had half stopped listening as I had become fascinated by Mavis Peebles. For a woman of her age, she was damned attractive. That bounder Eric Morley might not want to see her in a swimsuit and evening wear, but there was something out of this world about her, unlike any other lass I'd met on this whole planet. She was no Anne Aston, but then frankly, who is? I was beginning to regret turning down La Peebles' rectal offer. I had to force myself to stop looking at Mavis Peebles while she was talking, as the way her lips moved were doing unnerving things to my loins. So I had been staring past her, my attention grasped by a particularly vivid star in the sky, the type of star one wishes upon, probably. I had gradually become aware that the star seemed to be increasing in size, and rapidly, too. I blinked. Was it? Getting closer? Mavis, I interrupted her lecture. You must know something about astronomy or the gawping of the sky that you do. Is that star supposed to be doing that? She spun to look in the direction in which I was pointing. She gasped, a sound one only wishes to hear from a woman during a very specific activity, and we definitely weren't doing that. She glanced back at me, panic engulfing her face. Listener of mine, something then happened. So briefly, I can't swear on the Bible, or Baden-Powell's Scouting for Boys, or even Sven Hassel's The Bloody Road to Death, that it wasn't a trick of the light. But as Mavis Peebles looked at me, her eyes... Well, she blinked. But side to side, as opposed to the more usual up and down... Mavis Peebles rummaged in her bag and produced a pair of binoculars, which to the eyes of this old warhorse looked military-grade. She held them up to her face, twiddled the focus, stared at the star which had visibly tripled in size in a matter of seconds, and gasped again. Well? I demanded. Mavis Peebles handed me the binoculars. I think, Desmond... I forgave her the admission of my title in the circumstances. But you're about to have another close encounter. My muscles tautened in readiness. 
One in particular. There was no way I was allowing those bug-eyed sods access to my tradesman's entrance again. After all, an Englishman's brown eyes is elephant and castle. I peered through the binoculars, but all I could see was a dazzling light which seared my retinas. I removed the binoculars, and, shading my eyes, I tried to see the object behind the glow. Look! I grabbed Mavis Peebles' arm. Something has just dropped from whatever it is. Mavis Peebles snatched the binoculars back and stared avidly. Two of them, cylindrical, I think, with something mushroom-like over them. I think they're going to land here. Should we, um, take cover, do you think? She didn't respond, just continued to stare through the binoculars. I didn't wait for a response. I just dragged her into the bushes. Something I haven't done to a lady since the late 1960s at Studland Beach. By now, the object was almost overhead, and far from being silent, it was making a roaring noise which seemed familiar. We peered out from our wholly inadequate hiding place, and instantly it was as though veils were lifted from our eyes. At exactly the same time, we realised that the unidentified flying object was a helicopter, and that the items which had dropped from it were a brace of parachutists. As they landed, gracefully, I conceded, they detached their black parachutes to reveal themselves to be the coves in black. And they were both armed. Who are you, bounders? I asked with an exasperated sigh. You are beginning to give me the most purple pim. But I was interrupted by one of the coves. Sir Desmond Sterling? He barked in a clipped voice, like a rank starlet only deeper. You have become too much of a nuisance. Feelings mutual, old bean, I replied. So what now, eh? Will I be slapped with a fine up before the beak on Monday? No, the cove snapped, flicking a switch on his very odd-looking weapon. It is time for you to go missing. What? I was outraged. You can't do that. Besides, I'm tremendously famous. My absence will be noted. I have friends in high places. So do we, the second cove said. They both looked up in the sky. My brain pushed down on its accelerator pedal. You can at least allow Miss Peebles to leave. She has committed no crime. Gallantry was always my forte. She too has pushed her luck too far and for too long said the first cove, although, frankly, the pair of them were so interchangeable I wasn't sure where they bothered to take turns. Miss Peebles has interfered with our plans once too often, and the price on her head is too high to forego. I say, old thing, I turned to face Mavis Peebles. You have ruffled some feathers. When the bounty is that high, it means you've been doing something right. Oh, no, boys, said Mavis Peebles. You're not taking me anywhere. My reflexes, honed at war and on the cricket field, are usually lightning-paced, but I'm still not sure what then took place. Both coves had their weapons snatched from them. So rapidly they were still trying to pull their triggers long after their hands were empty. By the time they twigged what had happened, their guns were in our possession. 
mine and Mavis Peebles. But how? I have tried to replay that moment in my mind, using slow motion, much like they do for the soccer on the idiot box. But what my brain tells me I saw, I simply can't believe. It happened in the periphery of my vision. The coves aimed their weapons, and from Mavis Peebles' mouth erupted a tongue, forked, several yards long, which grabbed the guns from their hands and deposited them in ours, all in the matter of seconds. I can't have seen that. Can I? I goggled at the strange-looking firearm in my hand. I glanced at La Peebles, and she was already pointing her gun at the coves. What the deuce? I spluttered, my mouth lagging far behind my poor brain, which was already trailing like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking competition. Cover them, Mavis Peebles demanded, her voice steely, almost metallic. Yes, I agreed, and you nip to the village and call Plod. I think not, she laughed humorlessly. Try explaining this to your police. Then what's our next move? I asked. Her finger applied the smallest amount of pressure on the trigger. I'll take the one on the left. Yours is the one on the right. We can't just gun them down in cold blood. I was outraged. Geneva Convention and all that, not cricket. They were about to do the same to you, she replied. I've cheerfully mowed down both Nazis and communists in previous skirmishes, but never just an unarmed cove in front of me, and not with such a mysterious weapon. Who knew what it would do? Mavis Peebles made an extraordinary guttural noise. Puh! Just a man to expect a woman to clear up the mess. She raised her weapon and aimed it directly at a cove. But before she could pull the trigger, we were engulfed in a dazzling white light. A piercing shriek sliced through my head. I staggered, clutched my forehead, dropping the gun. But I'd lost consciousness before I hit the ground. Sir Desmond Sterling was written and performed by Anthony Keach.